Are you ready? Are you ready for the highlight of the day? Are you ready for the highlight of the week? Are you ready for maybe the highlight of the entire year? This week's Parsha podcast is about to begin. Now, before we begin, I want to let the audience know that the newsletter is back and we are on a roll. And if you have been a subscriber to the newsletter and you've been reading it the last couple of weeks, you know what I'm talking about. I found a way to bribe myself to write a new newsletter each week. Maybe one day I'll tell you about the tactic that I used. It does help, of course, that the kids are back in school, but I'm working really hard on it. And I'm not going to publish a weekly newsletter unless it is really interesting and helpful. And in fact, regarding last week's newsletter in our neighborhood, one of the rabbis quoted the newsletter in his sermon and he called it masterful. And I must confess that rabbi who quoted the newsletter has a remarkable, uncanny ability to capture the quality of a newsletter in one word, masterful. I myself cannot come up with a better description. Well, okay. I'm convinced. I'm convinced. I want the newsletter. How much is it going to cost me? This is the nice part. All the life-changing insights of the newsletter are free. And there's a link in the show notes. If you scroll down, you should see a link to subscribe to the podcast. Or you can visit the website, rabbiwalby.com forward slash newsletter. You can also send me an email if that's easier. And you know my email address, rabbiwalbyjima.com. And I'm not promising to send a new newsletter each week. Because my rule is, if I don't have something that I think is potentially life-changing for you, you're not going to have it in your inbox. So check that out, the newsletter. Now also, as you know, I'm recording from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. And if you enjoy our content and you want to support the great work of Torch, so first of all, we appreciate your support. It means a great deal to us. And as you know, long-time listeners know, we have a major fundraiser in a couple of months at the beginning of each calendar year. And during the fundraiser, I'm somewhat of a maniac going crazy trying to get everyone's support. But the rest of the year, we don't really fundraise too aggressively. But we are nearing the end of the calendar year. And a lot of people like to support wonderful institutions and organizations towards the end of the calendar year. And I just want to remind you not to forget about your friends at Torch, not to forget about the Parsha podcast and all the other amazing podcasts that are happening here from the Torch Center, from the Nerve Center of the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. We take PayPal, our website, torchweb.org. We actually take Bitcoin at an all-time high and Doge. Put us in your will. And if you put us in your will, you're likely to add five years on average to your life expectancy because the Yetzirah does not want to support Torah. And he'll make sure that he'll keep you alive. There's a link in the description to support our work. You can always email me, rabbiwalbyajima.com. Thank you for your friendship and your support. And of course, for listening to the Parsha podcast, sharing it with a friend, five-star reviews. So let's begin this week's Parsha podcast. What I want to do today is something very interesting. 
not only is it interesting, I think it's also going to be very instructive. A study of one of the parts of our parsha. Of course, it's a packed parsha, lots of things to talk about. But I want to study today the episode of the overturning of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. I want to study Abraham's attempted intercession, the hair-raising rescue of Lot, everything that was happening back and forth between the advocate and the prosecutor, what was Abraham trying to do, what were the considerations, because when we study it and we look at it closely, we find some really interesting things are afoot. So, of course, Sodom has been featured already in the Torah. It was originally featured in last week's Parsha. Abraham and Lot must go their separate ways, and Lot chooses to move to Sodom. And the verse is unambiguous about the moral state of these cities, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We read in chapter 30, verse 13, Ve'anshe Sodom, the people of Sodom, Ra'im, they're evil, Ve'chataim, and sinful, Hashem ma'od to God, exceedingly so. Rashi tells us they are evil with their money. They are sinful with their bodies. Their sinfulness is comprehensive. Yet in last week's parasha, when Lot goes there, they are not destroyed. Sodom is featured one more time last week. It's part of the world war in chapter 14 that Abraham partakes in. The king of Sodom wants to give Abraham the spoils of war. He refuses it. I don't want a string. I don't want a shoe strap from you. And in our parsha, of course, it begins where it left off last week. Abraham is circumcised. He is visited by three angels masquerading as weary and hungry pagan travelers. Abraham interrupts his prophecy to tend to them. He regales them with a banquet fit for a king, and then he sends them along on their way. And then God says, how could I keep from Abraham my plans? What am I going to do? We read in chapter 18, verse 20. God says, am I going to withhold this information from Abraham? He's going to become a great nation. All the nations of the world are going to get their blessing from Abraham. He's going to instruct his sons and his family, his household after him. They're going to be just and kind and generous. I have to tell him what I'm going to do. And God reveals to Abraham his plans. The cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Their sin is very weighty. And I want to descend and to see what's the deal with this city. Maybe I'm going to destroy it or maybe I won't. And of course, Abraham launches an ill-fated intercession on their behalf. How can you kill the righteous alongside the wicked? Maybe there are 50 tzaddikim, 50 righteous people in the city. And in their merit, you can save all five provinces of this metropolis, five righteous people per province. Well, there aren't 50, maybe there are 45, nine per. Well, there aren't 45, maybe there are 40. We'll save four provinces of this city. Maybe there are 30, we could save three. Maybe there are 20, we could save two. Maybe there are 10, and we could save one province. All of Abraham's attempts are unsuccessful. Abraham relents and goes back to his place. And then chapter 19 begins, the angels arrive in Sodom. And in verse 1, they meet Lot, Abraham's brother-in-law and nephew. They separated in last week's parasha. Abraham rescued him from the world war as well in last week's parasha, but he is stationed at the city gates. 
And the two angels arrive to Sodom in the evening. And Lot is sitting at the city gates. And Lot sees them. And he gets up. And he runs towards them. And he bows before them. Why is Lot sitting at the city gates? Sarashi tells us, very interesting. The court of Sodom is at the city gates. That's where the courts are stationed. And that day, the same day that the angels come to overturn the city, that day Lot was appointed to be the judge of the city. And therefore he happens to be there. What a happy coincidence. That day Lot became the judge and he was sitting at the entrance of the city. And he was the first sodomite to chance upon the two angels. And when he sees them, he runs towards them and he tries to perform kindness and hospitality with them in a way that resembles what Abraham just did. And he says, come, come to my house, come to, I'm your servant, sleep over, wash your feet, and then you wake up and then you continue on your way. And they say, no, we'll sleep in the street. And he insists and he really begs them again and again. And finally they yield and they agree and they come to his house and he makes them a big feast and he bakes matzos for them and they eat. Lot is so insistent on helping these travelers that they eventually yield and he makes a feast for them and he bakes matzos. This is the first time we read about matzos in the Torah. Rashi tells us another really interesting quirk about this story. This happens to be Pesach, Passover, when we eat matzos and that's why Lot made the matzos when he made a feast for the three angels not the three angels, two angels this time. Two angels masquerading as guests. He's making the matzah because it is Pesach. So, of course, this is a head stretcher. This is Pesach, but it's exactly 401 years before the Exodus. Why? Because this is a year before Isaac is born, because they just foretold that Isaac is going to be born a year from now. And Isaac's birth is precisely 400 years before the Exodus. So this event of the two angels coming to Sodom and meeting Lot at the entrance of the city, it happens exactly 401 years before the Exodus. And it's already called Passover. And Lot knows that now we're supposed to bake matzah. He bakes matzah and they have a big feast. And then, of course, mayhem erupts in the city. And we read the description, chapter 19, verse 4, before they even go to sleep, all the people of the city, young people, old people, everyone, they descend upon Lot and they say, where are those travelers? We want them. We don't believe in hospitality. And Lot goes out. He leaves his house and closes the door behind him, tries to appease and assuage and mollify and calm the mob. I have two daughters. Take my two daughters. Don't touch my guests. And they say, no, we don't want your daughters. We want these people. This is against the rules of the city. And then the angels intervene and they grab Lot and they bring him inside and they close the door. And the people who are outside of the door, they strike with blindness and then they reveal their plans. We're angels. We're coming to destroy the city. Gather your stuff. Collect your family. We are leaving now. If you want to survive, you have to come. He tries to speak to his sons-in-law. They think it's the most ridiculous thing they've ever heard in their life. What? In the middle of the night? Suddenly, it's a beautiful day outside. It's cold maybe, a little nippy. It's April time. It's Passover time. 
but we're not expecting any apocalypse now. And they laugh at him and it's morning. Lot is trying to gather his stuff and they say, we have to leave now. They grab him. They grab his wife. They grab his two unmarried daughters and they hightail out of the city. They tell him not to look back and they run and flee for the mountains. And the city is destroyed. There's fire and sulfur that are rained upon the city. And then it's overturned. And Lot flees with the angels. He has his unmarried daughters, his wife with him. His wife makes the poor and unfortunate decision to look back. And she is turned into a pillar of salt. They end up in a city called Tsoar, which is spared. They're hiding in a cave. There's an assumption that the whole world is destroyed. And Lot's two daughters ply him with wine. And in successive nights, they sleep with him and they conceive. The older daughter bears a son, Moab, the father of the nation of Moab. The younger daughter has a son called Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the nation of Ammon. And both of these nations make notable appearances later on in the Torah. Of course, Moab is the family of Ruth, the great-grandmother of King David. So in a weird way, this whole crazy story in Sodom is the origin story of David and the Davidic line and the Messianic line and, of course, Messiah himself. That's the story of Sodom in our Parsha. And here are our questions. We have some questions here at the Parsha Podcast. Why is Sodom being destroyed only now? When Lot joined the Malachi's Parsha, they were already unrepentant sinners. We read 1313, the people of Sodom were evil and were wicked, excessively so, in the eyes of God. Yet only now, sometime later, Does God judge them? What changed? Now, God reveals this to Abraham, and this begins this whole long dialogue between Abraham and God. Abraham proposes, well, maybe 10 righteous people can save the city, or at least the province of the city. And God accepts that, doesn't contest that. He just says, or indicates, That there aren't 10 cities, certainly not 50, not 40, not 45, not 40, not 30, not 20, not 10. And therefore, the cities must be destroyed. Lot himself as an individual can be spared in the marriage of Abraham. But there is an idea being conveyed here that 10 people, righteous people in the city, can save the whole city. How does that work? Why would 10 people save an entire city. That part, at least the theory of it, is accepted by God, by Abraham. The reality is we couldn't find those 10 people, but had we had those 10 people, they would have spared the whole city, or at least the province of the city. Why? If everyone's evil and wicked, how can 10 righteous people save the wicked people of the city? Another question. Why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed on the same day that Lot became a judge in the city? You you would think that Lot being appointed as a judge of the city, that ought to afford the city some grace period. Remember last week's Parsha, Lot was almost Abraham's right-hand man. Rashi even tells us last week's Parsha when they 
separated from each other, that Lot was almost identical in his appearance to Abraham. Now, what that means is that on a spiritual level, they shared some characteristics. And all of Lot's behavior is almost emblematic, or at least it resembles, it's reminiscent of Abraham. He's sitting at the entrance of the city, and he's waiting for guests. Just like Abraham is sitting at the entrance of his tent, waiting for guests as well. Lot is eating matzah. He's observing Pesach. He's a special person. Abraham washes the feet of his guests. Lot is the same. He is doing kindness with superlative intensity in a way reminiscent of Abraham. And now he's appointed the judge of the city. Wouldn't it make sense that Lot, who absorbed some of Abraham's lessons and ideology and Weltanschauung, if he is added to the court, maybe they have a fighting chance. Why specifically on the night or on the day where Lot was appointed as judge of the city, he's an official of the city, that's the very same day that the city gets forever overturned. Another question. Why is this all happening specifically on Pesach? The night of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was the same night as the exodus from Egypt 401 years hence. Lot's baking matzah. And in fact, the entire event is evocative of the exodus. They're rushing and... There's this obsession with the doors. On the Exodus night, of course, they splashed blood on the doorposts. And Lot, he's closing the door. That's in verse 6. And the people of Sodom in verse 9, they try to break the door. And in verse 11, the angels take Lot inside and close the door. And then in verse 12, the Sodomites are blindly groping for the entrance to Lot's house. The door of Lot's house seems awfully central to the story in a way similar to the doorposts in Egypt on the night of the Exodus, on the exact same night, 401 years later. It seems like there's something very important going on over here in the story, in the story of the downfall and the overturning of Sodom. We are all here to accomplish something. We believe that you have a body, you have a soul. Your true identity is your soul. And you're here in this world temporarily. Your soul emanates from the spiritual world. It is destined to return to that spiritual world. And in this world, you have free will to make the right choices to accomplish the mission that the Almighty wants you to do when you're in this world, when your soul is temporarily bound to a body, thus creating this very unusual reality where the soul has to play second fiddle to the body, is subject almost to the whims of the body. And this new hybrid creature, we call it a man, a human, has to make choices and determine the fate of this person. And we're here to do something. We have the soul. The soul is very sensitive to spiritual matters. And we're trying to fix what needs to get fixed. 
We're trying, of course, to avoid the pitfalls and the obstacles and what we call tests along the way. And we're encouraged to try to draw ourselves closer to God and just do whatever we can to keep our focus on the mission and not forgetting that we're only here temporarily. But what happens when someone sins? A sin is a barrier between that person, that soul, and God. There's distance between the soul and its root. And the mission that the soul was sent here to do becomes hard and hard to fulfill. What if a person has become so corrupted that their soul can no longer accomplish the reason why it was sent here? It was sent here to do something. And because of the deeds of this person, that mission is no longer possible. You can't accomplish it anymore. So the Talmud tells us that when a person becomes so corrupted to the degree that their sinfulness becomes endemic, when the evil takes root and it becomes irreversible, when the soul is locked out, it cannot accomplish its mission, then that person is destroyed. The reason why you are here is to do a specific job. If you create the situation and conditions that you can no longer accomplish that mission, that's it. There's no reason for you to be here. Similarly, on a national level, when a nation reaches the point of no return, when their sins have become their inextricable nature, their time has come and they are destroyed. And again, this is eminently logical. If we're here for a mission, so long as that mission is viable, well, then there's a reason for you to exist. But once that mission becomes non-viable, once it is no longer feasible for us to become good, that's it. The experiment is over. And that thing, that person, that nation, or that city is destroyed. So our episode here with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, it starts off, God tells Abraham, I got to tell you what my plans are. I'm going to descend and see what is the situation, what is the standing of this nation, this city. God is doing an investigation that resembles a court evaluating the merits of a case, evaluating the evidence. What is God investigating? Says Rashi, God is investigating if their rebellion is complete. And if so, I'm going to destroy them. But if the rebellion is not complete, I know what to do with them. I'm going to punish them with suffering, but I will not destroy them. The two options here that God is investigating, God is weighing, is either destruction or suffering. If their sinfulness is unfixable, then they're done. But if there's still some hope, I'm going to make them suffer for the purposes of awakening them to repent. It's an amazing idea over here. 
God is inspecting to see if they have reached the point of no return. If not, if there's still a chance, then they will be made to suffer. Suffering is a way to restore good behavior, provided there's something left to save. And Abraham begins his defense. And he's saying, if there are 10 righteous people, they could save the whole city. And again, we ask the question, wait a minute. The 10 righteous people, they themselves are righteous. Everyone else is still a sinner. How can 10 people save a whole city? There's a deep idea here. If you have 10 righteous people, you have everything you need to start a turnaround, a renaissance, to start a mass movement. If there is a portion of righteousness that still remains, that can be used to kickstart the total restoration and purification and fixing of the city. It's an amazing thing. The entire city would be spared if there were a handful of tzaddikim. I can never underestimate the impact that a few righteous people can have. Ten people, that's all you need. Perhaps this is the theory behind the concept of a minion. Ten people, when they get together, this is a force capable of moving mountains. Maybe there's even a precedent for this. On the flip side, we know in the book of Numbers, Moshe sends 12 spies to go reconnoiter the land and 10 of them come back with a damning report. And the 10 spies persuaded the masses to rebel against Moshe and really ultimately rebel against God and to want to go back to Egypt. If 10 people can mislead an entire nation and cause so much pain and suffering, certainly 10 people can rejuvenate a nation, can inspire a nation. This is Abraham's pitch. If we have 10 righteous people, the city's not doomed. The city's not beyond repair. The city is still fixable. Their mission is still viable. Not because those people are righteous, or the, the other people, the sinners are righteous. No, they're still sinners. But so long as they have within their proximity 10 righteous men, 10 righteous people, they have a fighting chance. And God agreed. If you have righteous people among you, you are not lost. It's just that in actuality, there weren't 10 Sadiqim in town. Now that day, Lot was appointed as judge of the city of Sodom. Do you imagine that this would increase or decrease the likelihood that the city will repent, will undergo a spiritual renaissance? So, to me, it sounds a little bit counterintuitive. You know, Lot, of course, is no Abraham, but he was exceedingly righteous. He was a poor man's Abraham. He does superlative kindness. You know, in our parsha, in a weird way we could say, Abraham and Lot both offered to sacrifice a child for the sake of a mitzvah, for the sake of God. Of course, it's very different. Abraham with the binding of Isaac. 
and Lot offering up his daughters to fulfill the mitzvah of hospitality. Lot, of course, we believe made a mistake, but he was still a very special person. Last week's parasha, we learned that he looked like Abraham. They shared attributes. He's keeping Passover before it was even given. Yet on the same day that he was appointed judge, it seems like this would potentially lead to him having more influence on the people of Sodom, and maybe they have a chance. This is the same day when it gets clinched that they are forever doomed. The appointment of Lot to this position of judge was not a sign of them trending towards repentance. Rather, it was the final death knell of their chances of survival. Now, why would that be so? He's a judge. He has power, you would imagine. So I want to speculate two ideas. First, I think that the ability of outsiders to have influence sometimes exceeds the ability of those people who are part of the institutions to change the trend, the trajectory of the constituency. Once you become part of the machinery, once you are part of the gated institutional narrative, once you're on the payroll of Sodom, you work for them. You are subject to them. You're compromised. And you will never be able to have the same influence that you had prior. My grandfather, blessed memory, said that Lot was a special person. And the reason why he moved to Sodom and Gomorrah, the deep reason that he, at least that he thought was at play, it's because he wanted to do what Abraham did, to do outreach, to teach them about God, to teach them about morality and righteousness and kindness and justice, to bring the poor chaps of Sodom back to righteousness. And you know what? Maybe he could have done it. 1313, we read they were very wicked and very sinful. And then Lot moved there. And you know what? Now they have a chance. And that was still in play until he became the judge. Once he accepted the official role of a judge, that sealed the deal. The city now has no chance to repent. They're doomed forever. The Talmud says that a nation or individual has a certain amount of sins that's like their quota, their allowance, if you will. Once it's filled, they've reached the point of no return Their sinful ways are embedded into their character. Their opportunities have been exhausted. It's time for them to be destroyed. Once Lot became in charge, it's no longer possible for them to fix it. Their quota has been filled. Their allowance has been exhausted. It's time to overturn the city. You know, think about it. Why did Abraham not move to Sodom? Abram, of course, his life mission was to spread monotheism. Move to Sodom and Gomorrah and influence them. You know, Rashi tells us that Abraham stationed himself outside of Sodom, on the outskirts of the city, to try to influence the passerby of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
why not move to the heart of the metropolis and transform them from within? So I think the answer is, is that this was what Lot tried. It didn't work for Lot. And Abraham maybe had the same concerns. He was able to see you move to Sodom, you get corrupted. Or perhaps at a minimum, you become less influential. It's actually harder to change your neighbors, your acquaintances, and certainly your family members. The people that know you the most, the most intimately, the most closely, are the ones that are least likely to be moved by you. And now Lot becomes an official. He's in charge of everyone. knows Lot is the judge of our city. His capacity to influence shrinks to the degree that it's no longer possible for them to be restored. The city must be destroyed. He's now the official judge. He's on their payroll. He's subject to them. And now he's lost the ability to influence them. Lot being appointed judge sealed their fate. And on the day that Lot became their judge, they were destroyed. That's one approach to understand why Lot's appointment spelled their doom. There's another approach that perhaps we can suggest. And we are going to begin it with a shocking idea. Are you ready for this? A shocking idea on the Parsha podcast? This idea I heard from my grandfather in the name of his Rebbe, the great dean of the Mir Yeshiva, Rebbe Rucham Lovavitz. He pointed out that in chapter 18, verse 21, it says, Erdana, let me go down, God speaking to Abraham, let me go down and see what's happening in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and have to find out if I should destroy them or I should just make them suffer. What does it mean that God descended, went down, Erdana, let me descend upon this city? So the Targum, which is the official sanctioned translation of the Torah, the Targum says, Isgali, let me reveal myself. When the verse says that God descended upon the city of Sodom, what that means is that he revealed himself to the city. Now, here's the part where your mind gets blown. I hope your AirPods or headphones are firmly fastened. Listen to this. There is another place where the Torah says the word that God descended and the Targum makes the same translation. That doesn't mean that God descended, went down lower. It means that God revealed himself. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 20, God descended upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and he called to Moshe to ascend to the top of the mountain and Moshe went up. This is a few verses before the Ten Commandments. What does it mean that God descended upon the mountain? Vi'isgali, says the Targum. God revealed himself on the top of the mountain. What happened in Sodom is very similar to what happened in Sinai. In Sodom, there was a Sinaitic revelation. And I want to add, this is me talking here, from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. There is a third place where the same translation is found. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. 
God says, I will pass in the land of Egypt on this night, the night of the Exodus, and I will strike every firstborn in the land of Egypt, the people, the animals. I'm going to also do miracles and wonders to destroy the isles of Egypt. What does the Targum say? What did God do to Egypt? The Iskalisin, I will reveal myself in Egypt. The Exodus. The event that marked the destruction of Egypt, which coincided with the salvation of the Israelites, the event that happened exactly 401 years after the overturning of Sodom, was also a revelation. Sodom, like Sinai, like the Exodus, was a revelation. It carried with it the ability to do to the Sodomites what the other revelations did to the Jews. The Kabbalistic literature tells us that the Jews in Egypt were on the doorstep of destruction. They were on the 49th level of impurity. And that allowance, that quota, that part where the sins get filled and the nation gets destroyed, that is level 50. And they were one level away. The Jewish people in Egypt, were told, were a hair away from being destroyed completely. And God did a revelation. But the revelation in Egypt did not tip us over the line to eternal destruction. To the contrary, we were transformed positively and were changed forever and became God's people. And now we discover what happened in Sodom. What happened in Sodom was the same thing that happened at the Exodus. God revealed himself. And that was the opportunity for the Sodomites to also transform themselves. They were also on the 49th level of impurity. And they had the ability to undergo the same complete 180 turnaround that we had in Egypt. But they blundered. And they were destroyed. They hired Lot as their judge. And he has some guests that come. This was their chance. If they did not protest his hospitality, it seems that they would have been spared. And again, we have this overlap. There are doors, the doorposts in Egypt, and we have a door and a door and a door in Sodom. In Egypt, the Jewish people who were at the 49th level of impurity, had they walked outside, left their doors, they too have gotten swept away. And in Sodom, the Sodomites, had they also stayed indoors, they would have survived. Had they tolerated Lot's kindness, they would have survived. It would have demonstrated that there's still some here to save. And this is Lot's first in the job. They always say, I don't know if this is true anymore, in our very polarized political climate, but it used to be that the presidential approval was always highest at the beginning of an administration. You give the new guy or gal a chance. Let's see what they can do. Now, for our sizable international audience, the president of the United States is like the head of parliament, like the premier, the prime minister in a parliamentary system. So here is perhaps the second way to explain why this event or what's happening at this event, and it's specifically on the day of the Exodus, and it's specifically on the day that Lot was appointed judge of Sodom. 
on the day when Lot's influence was at its highest, they were given a chance to do one mitzvah and not torpedo his hospitality. And they failed. They left the doors. And by doing that, they demonstrated that their corruption was so deep-seated and immovable, they're at level 50, they've crossed over the point of no return, and they must be removed from the playing field. Their quota is filled, their allowance is exhausted, their mission is not viable anymore, there's no place for them in the world anymore. Had they been ready for that revelation, had they seized the opportunity, who knows what happened when God descended slash revealed himself in Sodom may have been a very positive experience, may have been an Exodus-like, Sinai-like transformation, but alas, they were destroyed. This study of this story, I think, gives us some very valuable lessons. So first of all, the general concept, I think, is a wonderful principle. We have an allowance. We have a certain amount of sins that anybody will tolerate for us as individuals and for us as collectives, as a city, as a nation. And only once you are beyond the point of no return, level 50, only then are you removed from the scene. And by the way, this is how the great empires of yore, how they collapsed, and how we are still here. Talmud tells us again, the Almighty does not punish a nation until they fill up their fill, until they fill up their quota. Where are the Greeks and the Romans and the ancient Egyptians and all these great, mighty empires that control the whole world? The Almighty took care of them, destroyed them. Once their sin and evilness became so pervasive and there was no hope for them ever rectifying their ways, they're gone. They've been destroyed. They underwent what happened in Sodom. Now, of course, we're not immune to this system. When we get to level 49, it's really dangerous. But the Almighty promises that that will never happen again. Why? Because he's going to cause us to have some suffering. We're always going to be reminded of what we're here for if we get too close to the finish line, to the, not the finish line, to the line of being finished. We also have something called Yom Kippur, which brings our tally back to zero. Back to zero, fresh, clean start. And that's why we endure. And by the way, Lot, after he leaves Sodom, he goes to a city called Tsoar. Why does he choose the city of Tsoar? So you look at the story, it says, because, well, it's a new city. And Rashi tells us, what does it mean it's a new city? It means that there hasn't been so much time for the city to become corrupt. How many sins could you do if you just got started? And that's why it's not gotten close to its fill. And the Talmud, by the way, the book of Shabbos, page 10, tells us this is good advice to live in newer cities. They have more runway. That's one idea, a very powerful idea. Suffering is a form of us being nudged away from a point where we can be destroyed, God forbid. But there's also a very heartening aspect of this concept. If you are still listening to this podcast, 
or if you even started to listen to it 45 minutes ago. If you're still here, that is testimony, that is evidence that your situation, our situation, is not irreparable. We're still fixable. It's not too late quite yet. Our mission is still viable because you know what? If it wasn't viable, we're taking off the playing field. What a powerful idea. What an inspiring idea. If we're still alive, it's not too late. So long as the candle yet burns, we can still fix. If the candle of our soul still burns within our body, we can still fix our ways, mend our ways, and get back on track and accomplish what the Almighty expects of us. Another powerful idea. We also have the idea of the power of 10 people. 10 good people is all you need to transform a whole city. And this, of course, reminds us of the importance for us to accord honor and respect to the righteous. The Talmud, the book of Sanhedrin, page 99b, tells us that someone who makes the following statement, my ahanulan rabbana, what do the rabbis do for us? They're studying for themselves. You know, they're, they're in their books and they're reading all these ancient texts. What are they doing for me? What are they doing for the population at large? They're like parasites on the government's dime, on taxpayer dime. They're not contributing to society. Says the Talmud, someone who makes that claim loses their portion in the world to come. Why? Because you're not realizing that these people the righteous people, are ensuring the world's perpetuation. Says the Talmud, continues the Talmud, this person is also rejecting and repudiating the Torah. Why? Because the Torah quotes a verse in Jeremiah. The Torah says, if not for my covenant of day and night, the rules of heaven and earth I will not place. God will not allow the world to continue unless there's Torah. So the people are studying Torah, teaching Torah, spreading Torah, disseminating Torah, they are the ones who are maintaining and perpetuating the world. And if someone says, well, what are the rabbis doing for me? Someone like that is rejecting Torah. Amar Rav Nachman, Rav Nachman says, they are also rejecting our Parsha scripture. Our Parsha teaches us that 10 righteous people can save a whole city. How could you claim that the righteous people, the tzaddikim, the rabbis, are not benefiting anyone? Don't you read what Abraham says? The ten righteous people can benefit an entire city of sinners. How much are we indebted to the righteous, to the rabbis, to the tzaddikim? And one final amazing idea. The Almighty descended upon the city of Sodom. He descended upon them to give them one last chance. He revealed himself to them, says, okay, what are you going to make of this? Are you going to go and follow the ways of the Jewish people 401 years later, of course, so it's not chronological. You are being given one last chance. We have two peoples on the doorstep of eternal destruction, on the 49th level of impurity, 
Both of them happened the same night. The Jews in Egypt on the same night as the Sodomites in Sodom. And both have a revelation of God. And for one, they decide to make the most of it. They stay indoors. They don't leave the doors of their homes. And they're chosen to be the nation of God, extracted from Egypt to be God's people forever. The Sodomites had the same, or maybe not quite the same, but they were also given an opportunity. And instead, what ended up happening to them is they were rained upon with sulfur and fire and overturned and shoved into the earth's crust. And I think this applies to us as individuals as well. All of us, before the Almighty pulls the plug on the viability of our mission, He's going to give us one last final chance to rectify, to fix, to repent. We're going to have one revelation. We won't know it's a revelation per se. We are going to be given one more chance to make sure that we are in the Almighty's good graces and we are best advised to be ready for that revelation and don't make the mistake that the Sodomites did. Traditionally, before someone passes, they say the vidui, the confession of the deathbed. And when you say that, that's your moment of revelation. That is your chance to make sure that you are up to snuff. The sodomites were given the chance and they blundered. We better not make the same mistake. Okay, let's so this week's A and Q. Sorry, we don't have an A and Q anymore. Do you believe it? A&Q was all last year. Last year, no A&Q. Let's hit this week's exquisite insight. I still have a hard time saying that. Exquisite insight. Listen to this. Listen to this. I'm going to read you something that is startling, quite eye-opening, very sensible, coming from a very credible source, but absolutely wild. In the introduction to the eighth volume of the book called Igros Moshe, this is written by the giant of the 20th century, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, his sons share the following story. It was the winter at the end of 1921, and there was a man, Rabbi Feinstein at the time was a rabbi in Russia, and there was a man who was dying with a terrible disease that his tongue was swollen in his mouth. And he's about to die. And the rabbi of the town, Rabbi Feinstein, came to visit him. And again, this story is being written down in the book by the sons of Rabbi Feinstein, who say that his that their father, Rabbi Feinstein, Rosh Feinstein, very credible and reputable source, told them this story. So he's a rabbi in Russia in the winter or the fall of 1921. And he's visiting this person on his deathbed with a swollen tongue. And this man says, I want everyone else in the room to leave. I want to be here just with me and the rabbi. And it was the week following Parsha's Vayera, our Parsha. And he said the previous week, Parsha's Vayera, he was asking some questions. How did the daughters of Lot, who committed that repugnant 
an immoral act with their fathers. How do they merit to have Messiah come from amongst their descendants? And they had no shame in the terrible deed that they did. Not only that, when they named their, their sons, Moab from my father, Ben-Ami from my nation. And he spoke about the daughters of Lot in a very derogatory fashion. And that night claims this person on his deathbed in Russia in the fall of 1921, speaking to Ramosha, Ramosha Feinstein. And that night, he has a dream. And in his dream, there's two old women come to visit him in his dream. And their faces are covered. And they tell him that we are the daughters of Lot. And we heard what you said about us. And we came from heaven above to tell you the answer to your questions. And the reason why, say the doors of Lot to this man in his dream, as he recorded it, to Rev. Moshe Feinstein, who told it to his kids, who wrote it in a book. We were worried. People are going to say that they come from the family of Abraham and they were saved in a miraculous fashion from the overturning of Sodom. And what actually happened was not incest, rather it was a miracle. They had an immaculate conception, and that's how they had their babies. And we were worried that our pregnancies would lead to the formation of a nonsense religion where people are going to believe that God, so to speak, impregnated a woman. Do you believe people actually believe that? But I guess that we're concerned about that. And in order to preclude and prevent anyone from doing anything like that, we decided to name our sons Ammon and Moab and to admit to all what we did just to make sure that there's not going to be a promotion of idolatry from our progeny. Whenever a woman becomes pregnant, there is a man, there is a sperm donor at a minimum, That's where it comes from. And the reason why we did it is with noble intentions. And the reason why Messiah will emanate from us is because we were willing to stomach that embarrassment in order to stand up for God. And because you spoke about us so derogatorily, continue the daughters of Lot in the dream to this individual, you're going to be punished that your tongue, your lashon, your tongue that spoke evil against us is going to swell like what happened to the 10 spies who spoke negatively about the land of Israel. And that's how you're going to die. That is the story that the man tells Rabbi Feinstein on his deathbed. He finishes the story. He turns to face the wall and he dies. Now, again, we don't know if the story is true because it's this guy. Maybe he made up the dream. Maybe yes, maybe no. But we do know for sure that the sons of Ramosha Feinstein heard it from their father and he accepted it as a viable or at least a plausible interpretation. And, of course, for us, it totally reshapes our understanding of these two women. You know, we think of them as you know, being very immoral and acting improperly. But again, 
it's troubling to understand you know, how Messiah comes from this union or these unions. But what an interesting idea. What an exquisite insight that at least there is this claim or this story, this account, if you will, of what they were thinking and what was motivating them and how we have to not speak negatively about them because these were special women like their father Lot. He was spared. Of course, he's not perfect. He's not Abraham. He's a poor man's Abraham, but he's still a very significant and important person. I thank you for listening. Again, I am urging you to go subscribe to the newsletter to support the great work of Torch coming to you from the Torch Center, the glorious Torch Center in Houston, Texas. This is the Parsha Podcast. My name is Yaakov Wolby. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Have an amazing rest of your day, a fabulous and splendid and sensational and terrific and wonderful and incredible Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week.